0: This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King.
1: Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, Face the Facts, a high-powered group of press and political heavyweights, have teamed up to cut through the noise of the election countdown, with 100 facts in 100 days. We'll talk with Frank Sesno, the former CNN veteran, and Bob Herbert, the former New York Times columnist, about Face the Facts, its goals, and how the project came to be. But first, I'm joined as my co-host today, my old friend and comrade in arms Craig Manassian. Craig and I have covered a lot of miles together, and when I left the White House and largely left politics and entertainment, he stayed with it, makes me jealous every day. A little bit about Craig. He came up through HBO, working on Comic Relief and running their comedy arts festival in Aspen. At the White House, working for Joe Lockhart, he served as assistant press secretary to President Clinton, and he's remained close with the president, serving as director of communications for the Clinton Global Initiative in addition to his other consulting work at Manassian Media. You should know Craig works very closely with Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert on some of their work outside the studio, and we'll get into that. Craig, thanks for joining me on Polyoptics Thank you for having me. Long time. I've wanted to make this conversation happen for a long time. It's just uh, its hard to get together, given the schedules. Uh, I think you were just coming up this week before the show taping from Charlotte, uh, North Carolina we had uh, our mutual friend Theo LeCompte on the show a couple weeks ago how do preparations for the convention look from your eye you know they look great um, they've really done some
2: new things I know Theo talked about it a couple weeks ago with their more or less their fan fest and they know that they're gonna do the Thursday night at the arena this year obviously with some former President Clinton is gonna be putting President Obama's name into nomination it's exciting it seems like the the community there is really excited about it and they're engaging regular people in a way that at least i don't remember through all the conventions that you and i have
1: done um, they're doing it they're doing it differently and engaging more people and i think it's great a little bit of a bummer for me that that conventions are now being pushed farther and ba- farther back on the on the calendar toward election day the democratic convention is going to happen what the 3rd through the 5th of september I think I mentioned that on one of my posts that when I on my first convention for Dukakis it was the middle of July and you had all summer for the tickets to uh, for the two tickets to campaign against each other. Now we're going to be compressed until to about uh, ten weeks. Sure, and I think I think this is by design. Some respect, it just narrows
2: the window for which any incumbent president has to fend off the challenger. How much you have to spend on advertising? How much? Actually, airtime there really is, and uh, and time on the ground between Labor Day when you know a whole chunk of America starts to pay attention
1: in the election. So let's talk about the challenger. Uh, and you know, on Polyoptics, I'd love to take a very sort of even-handed look at both the candidates. Um, and and as a advanced man like you, Craig, I'm I was sort of hoping that Governor Romney's trip around the world would be in some ways triumphant because I think that the idea of a of a uh, challenger candidate, whether Democrat or Republican, having the opportunity to visit with our allies to show their chops overseas uh, is a good thing. And uh, But it hasn't quite worked out that way as Governor Romney has gone to England, Israel and Poland, has it? No, I, I think he, to make a tortured
2: Olympic analogy, was hoping to go over there and for this to more or less be the equivalent of the
1: dressage competition. And he got the hurdles all the way through the trip. Um, let's let's break it down a little bit uh, and let's start where it ended, because it sort of became a farce and, and a farce in a way that I think is not entirely fair to Governor Romney. He is he's uh, give uh, laying a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier uh, in Warsaw. Uh, reporters who have been denied access to ask him questions throughout the trip are screaming at him and you've heard them over and over, scream at President Clinton. Uh, and uh, Rich Gorka, the traveling press secretary, says, um, show some respect. This is a holy site. Kiss my ass, or phrases in a different order. Um, and that becomes the story of the day. Is that fair to a candidate going overseas like that? I,
2: I don't think it's fair, but I think you have to be careful on these in planning these trips. We've both we've both planned these trips and you have to think about the media from the business standpoint so here here's a group of media they don't have an organized press plan they don't they don't have an organized pool yet so the media is has to justify this trip to their corporate bosses Um, I I know we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show about the business pressures on media but it's expensive they go over hoping to get something out of it campaigns whoever the campaigns are are hoping to stage manage it as closely as possible And there you get the pressure built up and, um, you know, you have to be thoughtful about the way you relieve some of that pressure. So things like the example that you gave don't happen and the story becomes what an aide said
1: and not what the candidate said. So I always used to lament when President Clinton would allow himself to be cornered by the pool and answer a couple of questions with Secret Service around him. His back is against the limo. The shot looks like crap. And I would Try and create a better Q and A situation to, as you said, alleviate that pressure. Like reporters want to have an, a chance to ask a few questions beyond the anchor sit down. How would you have handled it for Governor Romney? I think for any candidate, I would just think
2: be more deliberate about providing at least a little bit of access so that they've done their job. They can they can go back. They can say they have a sound bite. They have a sound bite that you've put some thought into it and it doesn't get to that point. I, I think that was just an example at, at the end of a trip of a lot of frustration being expressed. That, that frankly, was avoidable. We,
1: we've, we've all been in those situations. Uh, let's switch gears because um, you know, I know we're going to talk a little bit later with uh, Frank Sesno and Bob Herbert about face the facts, uh, but so much of what um, young people in America get their information from these days sometimes comes from comedy central and the two shows uh the daily show with john stewart and the colbert Report. and you do a lot of work with uh john and stephen uh helped to produce their uh events on the mall in washington around the 2010 election uh how did that relationship begin and what's in store for 2012. well before I got involved in politics, I was
2: at HBO and I worked on Comic Relief and, and that led to working on the U.S. Comedy Arts Festival. So I had a relationship with um, with them as, as young comics and, and their managers and, and Comedy Central was a big part of that. Um, I, I think an interesting story, and I, I think you may have been around for this, was when John took over The Daily Show in 1999 from Craig Kilborn. Yep. It was a completely different show than it is now. Uh, we were we were still in the administration and Stephen came down to um, cover the White House for a day and we talked about it and, you know, now that might be a kind of obvious way to get your message out, but I think there was still a, a skepticism from, from both political points of view about what a comedy show could do. Um, but we started to embrace it just like there was, I think, the Clinton White House was the first White House that had someone who was director of new media that at the time was really looking at blogs and trying to find out what was happening online so it was um, the relationship started for me from my days at HBO but continued as we were trying to broaden the way we were communicating
1: President Clinton's message for what he was doing for the American people and uh, and so how How did your involvement in the in the events in the mall begin and and what's going to be happening this year? Because you'd expect them to try and do an encore, wouldn't you? Um, I expect might be a strong word. Hope. I think there are a lot of people out there who uh,
2: are hoping there's something. I think the you know, their their point of view on comedy, which is true of a politician, a comedian, a, a writer. You've been involved in Hollywood, you know, is an idea is good. But it has to be matched up with really great execution. And I think they were really pleased and and said as much about how well what they conceived the rally to restore sanity and or fear could be and how it came off. And everything really just fell into into place. So I don't think you'll see them trying to recreate that. Um, It came together because John thought it would be an interesting way to explore the boundaries that he tries to push in comedy And uh, we got brought into it about six weeks before when he finally decided he could he they had the time and the energy and the network was behind them to do it. So, um, you know, from about mid-September to when it was actually executed was a real sprint. And they they wanted it to look and feel like a real political rally, something that harkened back to the to the really movement oriented rallies historically on the mall. But they wanted it to be about comedy. And from a comedy point of view, that's a really difficult challenge because if you're a stand-up or you're doing a television show, yes, you're playing to the audience at home, but you're really playing to a couple of hundred people in a studio as well. Controlled environment. A controlled environment. You know what works. And You've rehearsed. You've rehearsed. And um, even, uh, even a facial gesture
1: or a look can be captured by the audience where... Now the room is 300,000 people big. And video production and editing and manipulation is so much a part of the production of those shows. When you are, are doing something on the mall, it's just a stage act. Right. And
2: they, and they had to think about that. Some of the uh, original bits that they thought about for it, um, they had to edit or alter or think about how it would play bigger. And um, they were, I mean, just based on the audience reaction alone, they, they actually, they gauged it
1: perfectly. Now you and I both had a great time uh, and learned a ton working in the White House uh, overlapping a little bit, but probably i I did a couple of years in and then you did a couple of years in and I think you were there for the very end of President Clinton's administration and you've stayed closely involved with him and Doug and chris uh, and and what the president has done with the Clinton global initiative what where where does Craig Manassian fit into that puzzle.
2: Well, I'm the i lucky enough to serve as the communications director for the Clinton Global Initiative and and help out on other foundation-wide initiatives, and I you know for me it's interesting because I didn't do '92. I started with the 1996 campaign doing advance, and I think that's probably Lewis the Goldberg. first time we worked together, Louis Goldberg. <laughs> um, where's where's Louis? Uh, he is at a uh, investor relations firm here in New York. But there's not a day that goes by that I don't think we look across the river at New Jersey and say. That is where we got bitten by the bug. Um, is that that's where our first event. I think Freehold was Township, Freehold, and I think we went to Liberty State Park and right. and Newark and um, for our our first trip. And uh, I think I brought three suitcases because I wasn't really sure exactly what to what to expect. But not being there for '92, and then through the White House, becoming close and working with the alumni class that started it all. There's a little bit of um, both nostalgia and wistfulness that we weren't there at the beginning. So I've been really fortunate that through the beginnings of the foundation and, and certainly the beginnings of the Clint Global Initiative, that I feel like in my way, I'm contributing to the beginning of that next chapter of his life and, and the impact, just like everybody who did 92 um, was there for the for the beginning of his presidency.
1: Now, we're going to be talking a little bit uh, later with Frank Sesno and Bob Herbert uh says no, of course the longtime cnn veteran i think he he was there four years into the founding of it so that would have been like 1984 uh but that is now what like a quarter century ago uh congratulations craig you just got married your wife Shauna is a, a traveling correspondent f- for cnn following the uh the romney campaign what tales can you tell about what it means to to work for CNN and cover a campaign today?
2: Well, I can just say it through her eyes. I think when you and I used to deal with the press corps, you knew what deadlines were. You could think about what they were looking for and trying to produce events in a particular way. You know, we'd always talk about what the shot would be and think like a producer. Now there are no deadlines. And everybody is a journalist. Um, Everybody has a flip cam. Um, or iPhone or, or whatnot. So it's really changed the nature of of what they do. What I've what I've seen through what Shauna does and the other reporters that are on the road is they've almost gone back to the future in that they're also writing so much and filling so much content, whether it's short content for Twitter, longer content for stories for CNN.com, the other platforms um, of the other news organizations. That they're doing several jobs at once. They're I mean they're really triple threats, and that's that's something that the communications teams on both campaigns um, it makes it just so much harder for them to try to be thoughtful about how they're how they're interacting,
1: and they also don't have sort of the captive environment of of the usual press charter, either. Do right. they?
2: Not on not on the Romney campaign so far, but you know, I think the only good thing about that is we are amassing an amazing amount of frequent flyer points for a, <laughs> for a post election <laughs>
1: vacation. So, um tell us about the work that you did at the White House and how you've seen, uh, the nature of the Sunday shows change from when you were, uh, assistant press secretary working for Lockhart to the product that you see on the air today. Well, you know, the Sunday shows are interesting because their format hasn't actually
2: changed that much, but the, but the landscape around them has changed enormously. You know, in those days, um, there, and even a bit before those days, the, The Sunday shows occupied one end of the talk spectrum on TV. Um, Everybody remembers the McLaughlin Group, but one of the reasons the McLaughlin Group was so well-known and SNL would parrot is because it really was the only thing on TV that was more or less a shout-fest. And the Sunday shows were still a pretty sober, almost gentlemanly disagreement about the issues in in a very well-respected forum. And then you started having shows like Politically Incorrect. um, And the 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 distance between entertainment and news became so condensed that um every, you know it's affected how everybody does stuff so there is more competition among the Sunday show there's more there's more shows it's harder to break news um because just that pressure of waiting a week to do something or having the big guest sometimes a guest can't wait till Sunday right. to address something that that otherwise would have been the traditional forum to do so it's put a lot more pressure on them and i, I think you've seen that in some of the stories about um ratings and whether some of the anchors are going to stay around or not there's been a shift in anchors at abc there have been rumors about nbc and those used to be the the rock solid places where the anchors were for years
1: well talk about places that the anchors were there for years, we're going to bring in uh, Frank Sesno and Bob Herbert and talk about Face the Facts after this.
2: Email potus at SiriusXM.com.
1: So, Craig, after that scintillating discussion on uh, on the optics of the presidential campaign and everything else that we've shared, it's time for us to really face the facts. And for that, we are uh, really lucky to be joined today by Frank Sesno, former CNN bureau chief, Washington, D.C., longtime CNN veteran, Bob Herbert, uh, longtime columnist for The New York Times, two gentlemen who have really set the standard in journalism, really going back to uh, the beginning of CNN and and the 1990s at The New York Times. And uh, Frank is now at George Washington University. Um, and a media entrepreneur across many platforms, and we'll talk about that. And he's created Face the Facts, a hundred facts in a hundred days, leading up to the presidential election. And he has a, a powerhouse advisory board, of which Bob Herbert is one of the esteemed members. So Frank Sesno, Bob Herbert, welcome to Polyoptics. Great to be here.
3: Terrific to be with you,
1: Frank. Uh, we've been. Cr- uh, Craig and I have been on the site. It's only been up a couple days. Give us a readout of what's really happening at facts.org right now.
3: Well, as you mentioned, we're 100 facts in 100 days, one fact a day, uh, trotting out until the election. We actually timed it. We can do math in this world, too. And uh, we divide the facts along 10 categories, 10 facts per category. It's not PolitiFact, it's not factcheck.org, we're not running after the candidate, saying, you know, liar, liar, pants on fire. What we're trying to do is drive a fact-driven conversation about key issues that we as a public actually should know something about, should be able to grade our candidates on in terms of whether they're serious or just blowing smoke, and ultimately need to decide, compromise, and fix. So it's a fact about the deficit, or about jobs in the economy, or about energy and environment, or about education. We take that fact, think of it as a fact PSA. Maybe it's a visual, maybe it's a video, maybe it's serious, maybe it's animated. But the core fact, which we have researched meticulously, and then we drive conversation from it. We show everybody who's on our site or elsewhere where that fact comes from. Let's be straightforward and transparent here. But we also uh, you know, allow them to link to everything from op-ed columns to academic uh, peer-reviewed papers or white papers, and ultimately videos and documentaries. So take a deep dive if you want.
1: Tell us, bring Craig and I back to the very inciting moment of Face the Facts. How did, Was this <laughs> in the shower, cocktail party, <laughs> hang around D.C.? When no. did you decide this was going to be something you're going to make well, a reality? this Well, this is
3: the true story. I was up in New York. I was doing a panel conversation with Erskine Bowles.
1: Chief of Staff, White House.
3: Chief of Staff, White House, and the other half of Simpson-Bowles. That's right. And he was talking about Simpson-Bowles Commission and what needs to be done and how they worked and labored to get bipartisanship and some degree of agreement and and, and compromise to, to knock that document out. And what it ran into, the buzzsaw of the media, the buzzsaw of politics. Then it was my turn. And I said, well, let me talk about that, because I've been in Washington covering it for a long time. Let me talk about that buzzsaw of the media. Let me talk about the buzzsaw of politics. Politics is paralyzed. The media are broken. The public is frustrated. The problems are severe. But guess what? There actually are answers if we could get some of this system to move and to work. So a guy who was in the audience came up to me afterward, and he said, you know, I'm really taken by what you've just said, and I'd like to talk to you about an idea I have. And I said, well, that's fine. What's your idea? He said, well, I'd like to do 10 documentaries. Whereupon, I said, by, by when? And he said, the election. And I said, well, good luck. And he said, well, no, I really want to talk to you about it. So he came down to Washington. This was an event that took place in New York. We sat down. And he said, I'm serious about this. I'm prepared to put you know, serious money into this. And that's how this was born. And we went from, I told him, documentaries aren't going to work. You can't do 10 of them between now and the election. And then they go out once. We live in a different world now. And we live in a world where things go virally. And digitally, and let's build it around that, and that's what we did, and that's what we're doing.
1: How much? Um, uh, this is Ed Cook, or Ed Scott is his Ed name. Scott. Sorry, Ed uh, Scott
3: is a philanthropist. He made his money in in technology. He is uh, deeply committed to issues of, of global health. Uh, he started something called the Center for Global Development, put a lot of uh, of his own money into that, and he got us launched with this one. And we are out trying to raise money to go well beyond the 100 days because we believe that this can be a resource that may – and, I, you know, you have to be careful here, right? But what if we actually went out there, tilted at the windmills and said, no – We can have a different kind of conversation, one that starts with the facts, debate them, argue them, go at them, but start with something that's actually knowledgeable and give some degree of respect to each other and to the real information behind the issue rather than just a screed from the top of your head.
1: So your friend Bob Herbert started at the New York Star-Ledger and and NBC News and came to the New York Times, uh, and he was responsible for turning out, what, three columns a week, Bob? Three columns a week for a while, and then eventually two columns a week, yeah. And and he had, and uh, I've read an interview I think you did with Brian Lamb, and you're talking about the resources that you had just sitting on the third floor of the Times newsroom. A vast newsroom, uh, one of the best, the best news organization in the world. Frank, uh, with 100 days, how much resources have you put into this, and how many people are involved in turning this out? <laughs>
3: oh, we have a vast newsroom on the third floor. <laughs> We uh, Ed started us, started us out with a, with a decent chunk of change uh, that allowed us to hire. Let's see, we've brought on about five people,
1: <laughs> but we also
3: we've also brought on some wonderful graduate students and undergrads who help us uh, with with that uh, with the research component of it. Um, the person who's leading the effort on a daily basis is a is a somebody who ran a business came out of. Um, Out of television as well. In fact, he used to be a producer at Larry King Live, so he knows something about how to connect information and people to the public. Uh, we have a, a former AP bureau chief uh, who's just a solid journalist and who's able to coordinate uh, the facts themselves. And they have a you know, crazy guy, me, who runs around saying, well, what about this and what about that and what about the other thing? Uh, but several of us. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's, it's lean, but it's working. And what we've done is, from, a, from an entrepreneurial point of view, we've gone and we've connected with the best. So the people who've designed our website are people over Atlantic Media. Um, some of the folks who are working it's on our It's a very video-
1: classy-looking site. It's,
3: it's really cool. <laughs> and for those of you who are listening, if I may be so crass, if they wanted to see it, they go to facethefactsusa.org. And um, what, what's fun about this is it's really happening across all platforms. So if you want to get a fact today, you can get that in your email. If you want to um, live it on, on uh, YouTube, it's over there. If you want to take the deeper dive, you do it from the, from the website itself. And we've given it away to other media so Huffington Post, Journal Register Newspapers, um, Voxy, which is, which is a new startup for uh, Hispanic uh, Americans, um, Newsmax, which is a conservative site. This we're trying to get out there in a lot of different ways and we're
2: giving it away. Frank, it's Craig I'm I'm curious. You work with young people all the time. And given the nature of this project, how do they view what facts are? and how does that come into play with what you're doing we see so many websites so many short bursts on twitter was that an issue when you started this sort of changing people's opinion of what what a good fact is and also how it should be used by journalists.
3: Well, Craig, I love you for the question <laughs> because it's, you're, you're dead on and I see this with the students all the time. And in the information-saturated world we're in now where you Google something and up it comes or something blasts on your Facebook page or across your Twitter or whatever it's going to be, how do you know good from bad and what's original source and what's not? So part of our premise here is with every single fact, the first stop after the fact itself is how do we know? And we take people into primary source material. So what we said to our students is super tight not around what's going to get in and what's not, and what constitutes primary source material. So they are they are seeing it and being trained in it and having a great learning experience. But you raise a very interesting question, and that is, it sort of gets to sort of media literacy. How do you know that the information you've got is actual fact? Where it comes from? Has it been verified? Is it peer reviewed? Is it you know you know what axe to grind has been brought to bear? So it's been a bit of teaching, but they've caught on really great. And most of them, you know, I mean, you get a student who's a serious student. If you're going to get a good grade, you're quickly going to realize that you've got to go to the source. So
2: that's what they're doing. Well, I, I just learned recently, um, Fox has a position at Fox News called a fact writer, <laughs> which is more or less a copy editor that does their version of the ticker. Bob, I'm curious, at the New York Times, New York Experience, in journalism, did you see the same dynamic that Frank was describing with young journalists, people who've come into the business with a different way of consuming information and filtering information, and how did you get your vaccine? Would this have been it's, useful to you there?
0: It's, it's a, it's a um, little too early to tell that now because that younger wave is just now coming into the news business, and it's actually difficult for them to get in. I mean, the, the uh, access uh, points are narrowing. Uh, But in terms of the way traditionally we um, got information, it was very much the same way that Face the Facts operates. I mean, we would not, um, as journalists, generally have needed Face the Facts because we would have done exactly the same things on our own that Face the Facts is doing now. But what has happened in this new world of media is that you have so many outlets that don't really dive too deeply into the facts it's just quick 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 pump it out you know there are so many outlets and there's such a need for uh, content and time is at such a premium uh, that people just don't have the time and frankly many are just not inclined to do the extensive legwork that's needed to really understand these complex issues but one of the things that I love about face the facts. And one of the reasons why I think um, this initiative is so important is that we look all around and we see the, the um, gridlock in Washington and, and, and we see sort of the political paralysis. And it's my view that there is a real need for more civic engagement to push these politicians to begin to, to start beginning to get something done. And I talk about this on college campuses all over the country. And I strongly believe that the better informed the public is, the more likely people are to become more concerned about these important issues and to get involved, uh, either to uh, contact their elected officials, but even more important than that, uh, to become involved themselves, to see how they can participate. I mean, if you're interested in education, it might be uh, to take a stand in your local school system, or you might be interested in the economy and employment, or you might be interested... Uh, in uh, infrastructure, um, if you know more about these things, then you have a better idea of what you can contribute. and so I think that for ordinary citizens, um, this is as important or even more important than it is uh, for professionals in the media and for public officials and If
3: I, if I may jump in, the, the issue of civic engagement is actually something that we built into this, and that 's something else, else that makes it totally different from traditional media. We have a little button on this on the page that says "Factor me in." And we're developing some of these tools as we go. We're not completely built out yet. Let me, let me emphasize that. But imagine, if you will, that you, can, you see a video that tells you, this is one of our facts, 67,000 bridges in this country. We talk about infrastructure all the time, right? There are 67,000 of them that are considered to be in need of structural repair. Well, what if you can see a, a, you know, a clever little something that, that drives that point home? tells you how much the budget would be, you'd need to fix them all, tells you how much is actually there, and leaves you with some sense of both the fact and the context of it. Suppose then that you could click on something and look at a map of the country and look at, you know, where are the broken bridges? Oh, well, I see some of them near, near where I live. Suppose you could then click on that and go down and identify the bridges. Suppose you could then go down onto a street scene like you can with your Google Map and see the bridge. Suppose you can then figure out who to contact in your town or city to ask them, what are we doing about that bridge?
2: That's what we want to do ultimately. That's pretty amazing stuff. It, will it be viewed as a success if those facts and you know the infrastructure argument ends up in someone's campaign ad? Already has. <laughs> Tell us about it, Frank. <laughs>
3: our first <laughs> our first fact was was on the deficit and how much deficit we 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 spend in this country. And we spend forty one thousand two hundred we we contribute <laughs> can I use that word? Forty-one thousand two hundred and ten dollars every second to the, the, the budget deficit. That's just a fact. You may think the deficit's a bad thing; it's the end of the world. You may think it's a good thing because it's how we got to stimulate the economy. Whatever, but the fact is, forty-one thousand dollars a second. We have a little video. It was our first video put up over the sixty seconds that you would watch that video. Two and a half million dollars every minute are contributed, you know, are added to the deficit. Well, guess what? It shows up on Representative Joe Walsh's page. Pretty conservative Republican from California. He, he says, look what's coming out of George Washington University, nonpartisan. Look what they got to say about the deficit. If you think we should stop wasteful government spending, like this page.
1: <laughs> right. But, but Frank, I watched the video, and it was sort of a, a, a long way away from the way graphics are being used in movies like Waiting for Superman. Uh, it used the, the sort of old trope of, if you pile bills up this high, it reaches that high. It was almost very... The whole notion of face the facts, I, I have to ask Bob Herbert and you, Frank, is it too naked there standing by itself the way we consume media today because Bob Herbert spent 20 years taking facts and molding them into a story that would make me feel something well, having read those can facts. I, let me just
3: quickly go at that and then let me, sure. let, me let Bob do that. I think it's very important for us to point out all these are serious dangers. We know how many dangers there are on the road to trying to get through what we've tried to do. And in fact, we're going to tweak the page because, you know, being honest, there's something we're discovering and it's not quite working yet. Our fact lives as this sort of fact PSA. Think of it that way, but what we really intend to do is show people the, the original source material, where does this come from? in this case it's the budget. And then we link them with nearly a dozen different stories about the structural deficit, about what can, you know is it too much or too little. It, and we provide left, right, center, research, all kinds of other resources right there. We connect people with stories and videos and documentaries about it. So what we have to make sure with these quick hits is that the quick hit is the diving board. That's what you jump off of. But then you jump into the pool if you want. But we recognize that people are on the move and you're distributing information a lot of different ways. So the, the effort here is to start the story with the fact.
0: Yeah, there's a uh, details on demand feature uh, on the website. And um, what happens is you see the fact, and if the fact interests you, the fact itself... Um, then, as Frank se- describes it, you, you plunge into these details, and then you get a more um, sophisticated um, description of what's going on with these issues, whether it's in education or infrastructure or, or the economy and, and that sort of thing. And I think that, that it's really important that there not be too many bells and whistles with this, because what happens is we have these incredibly complex issues, very important issues. And what happens in the din, the media den and the political den, is that uh, the facts, the issues get distorted, uh, either for political purposes or um, uh, for reasons of ideology and that sort of thing. And this is sort of to put the raw facts out there. You take this information, you can run with it, you can be sure that it's correct. And then you make of it what you will. And I think that that's an important service right now.
2: Speaking of right now in the media right now, um, have you been following the newsroom? Frank, I know this is probably particularly <laughs> close to you and, and Bob, but there's a show that seems to be arguing facts from three years ago, the way it's narratively set up. Yeah. Your fans, do you think they captured it well? Does it <laughs> uh, help what you're doing?
0: I, I think I'm not a good person to ask uh, uh, about that show because it's, a, it's an entertainment show designed to make money and uh, uh, achieve uh, ratings. And I knew that if I watched it, I would be looking at this point and that point and nitpicking and saying, oh, nobody would ever say that. Or, no, that's not what really happens in I, the
3: I, I, Yeah, I watched. I lived that so. life. I was an anchor on a cable channel. I've, I've, I've been there, done that. <laughs>
1: well, that's <laughs> so, right. So, so it's pretty, uh,
3: pretty yeah. amusing. I wish I'd been there consultant. <laughs> I would say, hey, guys. Um, Here's what doesn't happen. Within <laughs> the first 30 seconds of an oil spill, everybody knows exactly how much oil is coming up out of the ground. <laughs> Not going to happen.
1: And uh, and Sam... Sam Feist is not the Sam Feist is not the kind of guy to have like four bourbons in the middle of the day as he's trying to talk his anchor off a cliff. Is he?
3: Well, I don't. I don't know what Sam drinks. Sam is a friend of mine, but I, I haven't counted the bourbons. But uh... you know,
0: when I came into the news business, which was uh, forty-two years ago, if you could believe it. Well, it you started like, when you were two, if, Bob. If uh, I can believe it, I was one and a half. But um you know, the managing editor the editor and the city editor at the Star Legend, they would in fact go out for martini lunches. <laughs> and I remember they took me they took me with them and I had a story to write that afternoon and I had one martini and then they ordered their second martini. And I wanted to be one of the guys, but I just knew. I said, "Bob, don't drink that second one." My, 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 my
3: big break in my bri- big break in the business came when I, at twenty-four, got sent over to London as a London correspondent because the correspondent at the time there, I believe, went into the pub at about eleven thirty and never came out. So you know, <laughs> you never know. But you, the show, the show. Look seriously on the show. I yeah. think it's really interesting. I, I love the fact that people, in the same way, The West Wing portrayed something nowhere near the you know does anybody think the White House works that way never (laughs) okay but it it managed through entertainment to make people think about some dynamic that was happening you guys know you were there right I mean it was ridiculous in many ways but it was also something important that took place where people connected with something fundamental Um, if people are connecting in any way shape or form with this program um, fundamental about how decisions get made as to what is told to the public or not, the values that should lie behind it, that's a good thing. It's so steeped in entertainment value that I'm not sure that people can distinguish. And everybody I know who's been in the in a television newsroom anyway think, says, come on, you know, that's not. It's a little sanctimonious. It's Sorkin at his worst, um, and and entertainment at its best or worst, well, but well, it
1: still may do something important. Well, it may do something important. And, and the West Wing over seven <laughs> seasons, you know, didn't reflect immediate reality, but it made people who for whose media diet tended toward NBC at nine p.m. on Wednesdays or Thursdays versus six thirty p.m. for the evening newscast. It gave them. At least some grist to chew on and I've seen you Frank uh, in some of your public commentary talking about and and extolling the virtues of the Comedy Central shows the uh, li- uh daily show with Jon Stewart and and Stephen Colbert show and and love Craig and, love yeah and and Craig well had, I love you for saying that Craig has a Craig has a, hu- a long-standing <clears throat> relationship with them having done uh, having been there worked with them for many years but 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 Stewart and Colbert are taking huge bank shots to tell a story where you're trying to go right at people with facts. That's okay. What's wrong with that?
0: I mean, yeah, but I mean we're not in competition with that. Face, face the facts is is uh, has carved out a uh, unique role. It's not about ratings. It's not about making a million dollars. It's not about being competitive. It is about the fundamental issue of this is what's real. But what
3: I love about Colbert and Stewart is, (laughs) I steal a line. They'd they'd be horrified at this, okay? I steal a (laughs) line from Donald Rumsfeld's Pentagon. Um, They, you know, remember how you know we we had the pools and the press went out there and we embedded reporters. These guys embed so much information in their show, in their satire that people will sit there and get smarter without even knowing it. Sometimes (laughs) that's right, and that's the genius. And no one should underestimate the power of satire that's been with us throughout human history. It's part of the way we tell stories. They are connecting as part of the new universe as part of the new media with different people in different ways. Then the good news is if somebody you know, hears a joke about the Intifada, imagine that, on, you know, on Stewart and then reads about it or sees something about it someplace else, maybe they see it a little differently or tune in.
0: Now, I love, I love both of those shows, but, uh, and, and I agree with Frank about the role and the importance of satire. But here's what I'm concerned about. I run into a lot of young people where those shows are the source of their news, the only source of their news, and that's not a good thing.
3: What, what though, Bob, if, that, if, if it weren't for those shows, they wouldn't have the news at all?
0: Uh, I still think that that's problematic. If, if, if uh, comedy shows are your only source of news, I don't think that that goes a long way to um, building a better republic. If those shows, which I think are brilliant satire... Satires are um, part of the um, part of the diet of a well-informed citizen, so that those shows sort of expand the intellectual
2: and emotional capacity of these well-informed citizens. Then I think that's a great thing. But I think that misses a key point about what they do. Um, so that theory, and th- and this is what John would say, assumes that young people who are more media-savvy and more connected than ever aren't consuming anything until no, no, 11 no, no, o'clock no, no, at night no 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 no
0: i'm only uh, no i said some young people there are a lot of young people out there who know a great deal about what what's going on so i don't want to uh this is not to malign the young people sure. in society i'm just saying i'm concerned about those young people who only see the comedy shows who only t- that's their only source of news sure well, yeah. and
2: i think that that pool is somewhat i i hope it's small i think the research has proved that it is small yeah um, you know, Gary Trudeau used to have this uh, way to talk about what they did on the on the writers on the Tonight Show did, which was you knew you could do a joke based on a headline at that time, passing by a newsstand and seeing the headline, maybe the subhead, never the body yeah. of the story.
0: But here's another thing, though: if they're making uh, if they're making uh, jokes or doing satire, let's say on the presidential race, on uh, you know, on, on President Obama or on Mitt. Uh, isn't it much more effective? Doesn't it have much more punch if the viewer knows what they're talking sure. about? If they already but I, but know, see, something that's why about that's the why it works. So I, what, I'm what I'm suggesting is that, is that they do. Yeah, yeah I mean, if you I, just go to it cold, it loses a great. But I,
3: I also think it has a tremendous pump priming. Capacity, right? You see a joke about something, and if you don't get the joke, maybe you need to figure it out. And or you hear something for the first time, and then somebody texts you something, or you just post something, on, you know, on, on Facebook, and you get a sort of second reference. And by the way, part of what we're doing on Face the Facts, we one of the first things we decided to do is if we do an eat your peas thing, forget it; it's not going to reach. So today's face, today's fact, which is about how many. Roads, roads we've built, and cars—how many miles of cars we drive—is an animation. The one we're coming out with tomorrow is um, a spoof. We are actually going to spoof *Bachelorette*, sort of, kind of, <laughs> a, a fake little thing. Um, will he choose me? Won't he choose me? Around the notion of the long-term unemployed. Boy, let me tell you, we did hand-to-hand combat on this one because I was so concerned about are we, are we making light of the unemployed? Are we, what's the right tone to be clever and, and funny and effective here but also get across real information? Well, you'll have to tune in tomorrow and see how we did it. And you can tell us if you think we really screwed up or if we were effective because we're also trying to get people's attention. And this is a big deal in a fairly concise fashion in a very information-overcrowded world.
0: Stephen Colbert,
1: look out. <laughs> face, face the facts
0: of doing spoofs. <laughs> but, but
1: at this really important time, sort of switching gears, Frank, um, at no time is a, 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 an election that has two vastly different choices is the need for sort of a centrist, fact-based TV news network more needed than today... And yet this week saw the resignation of CNN's longtime president, Jim Walton, a person I know you know quite well. Uh, Michael Wolf sort of gives a scathing commentary in The Guardian about uh, the the, the notion that CNN is a a property that can't be fixed. So on, on the theory that more and more people are going to come to face the facts, but still a lot of people need to rely on something for straight down the middle TV news. What's your view on where CNN goes from here?
3: Well that's the you know that's the billion dollar question right CNN's been struggling with this for almost literally 20 years we came out of the first gulf war i was there at the time the first gulf war 1991 saying what do we need to do to hold the audience when the story isn't peaking and the problem is that like a like a bad billiard game you know the eight ball's been bouncing around the table and not finding the pocket for a very long time and the the challenge that CNN now has because I would argue that in previous variations and iterations of this, it was badly done shows and, 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 you know, too many gimmicks and silly things or not enough poignant talent or whatever it is, not good storytelling. Now there's a structural challenge. Now you don't need television to know what's going on. When I joined CNN in 1984, four years after it was formed, and I'd worked at the wire services before that. When you're at a wire service, you're 24-7. I've I've been a 24-7 guy since before 24-7 was cool, okay? But, but the wire service went into a newsroom. It didn't go into your home. We were the first to go into your home with real-time news from anywhere in the world. Guess what? You don't even remotely need CNN TV for that anymore. In fact, CNN TV gets in the way because you, you're, you've got a much more responsive thing called your iPhone or whatever, right? So CNN's challenge is what do they do if they're going to be down the middle that people really need and want? They need you guys doing a show and pulling in millions, right? But but seriously, that's that's the challenge they face. If they're going to and I believe there can be an audience for that, but they got to smarten up. They got to go upscale. They got to be not afraid of not being the top network, not top-rated network. They got to take the gloves off a little bit and have the, and find their own outrage around finding the facts and reporting the stories and finding the Bob Herberts of the world to go out there and be the brilliant storytellers.
2: Josh actually did offer to do a, a show for CNN for millions. I'm I'm actually surprised that they million, millions they, they of, turned million, down. millions of viewers, turned Millions down. of viewers or millions <laughs> of dollars. <laughs> he was suggesting both.
0: <laughs> I actually think that T V could be the savior in terms of news and being the um the medium that informs the mass public. But I think T V has to figure out a new way of delivering that news. That's right. Uh, it has to be leaner, meaner, more interesting, and, um, you know, television for the 21st century. Now, I'm not a television person. I'm not the expert there, but I think television is the one, is the medium that can be the most compelling of, of any of the media that's there. You know, here, there.
3: here's the bottom line. You've got to add value to somebody's day. Right. If they're going to spend some of their precious time with you, and they can choose a thousand different things, you got to add value. I would look as an example to the Atlantic magazine, and I've got yep. to know these folks really well through this project. I've known them for a long time. <clears throat> the piece they ran, the cover story they ran about uh, women in work, c- you know, can you have it all, was off the charts in terms of newsstand purchases and 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 uh, email, uh, email and 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 Twitter traffic, off the charts. Why? because the story itself touched people so directly it was so brilliantly engaged and a little controversially too that's what cnn needs to do in how they present the news it's not you know it isn't you just can't pick a story and say here's what happened today you've got to be much more thoughtful about that
1: and the protagonist in that story was not a journalist it was a form it was a government official that's right and a, and, a, and an average person that's but right
2: but th- isn't there a, a, a part of the cnn story that's missing and not talked about that much is that their website draws 60 million that's unique exactly right. users a month. So I wonder if the way the media is going is that you'll start seeing CNN, The New York Times, MSNBC as promotional vehicles for what they're doing online. That's, that's exactly. Well, you know, we're going to do
3: television with Face the Facts. But we started online. If you were building CNN today, I very much doubt that you. if you were picking where you'd spend your capital, you'd probably put the big chunk, you know, for an online presence and you'd build some kind of secondary television uh Presence. The fact is, though, that we're we're still in this transition time. So the money, you know, right, the business model is spun out mostly by the television product. If you can take those ten million people online and turn them into more money than the television, then no one's worrying. And and you know, Jim Walton, on his on his having done this job for eight years or whatever it's been, really should be given credit. CNN is like this colossus of a global brand, you know. So the fact that they're domestic. Television channel is in trouble and has remained in trouble. That's a problem and it's embarrassing and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, you go anywhere in the world, it's one of the most recognized brands and logos out there.
1: But Michael Wolf's point was that because it's that Colossus uh, cable networks, cable systems will carry it if only as a balance to Fox News to what. Uh, and, I,
3: I don't know if I buy that, but I yeah. would I would take it a slightly different way, and that is because it's a colossus. It's inexcusable that the television product is as weak as it is.
1: So let's shift to the different kind of product, the product that rolls off a of press and 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 is created by uh, by dead trees. Uh, <laughs> Bob, <laughs> Bob uh, talking about storytelling that Frank just mentioned, and you know, great TV when it's done incredibly well on 60 Minutes or CBS News this morning or or some of the or or Frontline. Incredible storytelling, but people like Tom Friedman, David Brooks, Maureen Dowd, Gail Collins, and for 20 years, Bob Herbert, with 700 words, told great stories every day. What does a, Why does a columnist decide to hang up his keyboard and, and go off onto the... Well, I
0: tell distance? people 41 years on deadline <laughs> isn't that enough. Uh, I wanted to uh, write in longer forms, for starters. I mean, I'm in the bu- n- uh, middle of a, a book now that will be published by Doubleday uh, next year. But I also wanted to be more active than you can be as a journalist. I mean, uh, I'm a trustee on the uh, Schumann Center, which is a, a foundation that supports progressive journalism. Bill Moyers is the is the head of that. And I'm a, a distinguished senior fellow at uh, Demos, which is a think tank in uh, New York. But I go around and I give speeches. I give speeches, for example, to labor organizations. I uh, uh, gave a rousing speech to 6,000 steel workers in Vegas, for example, because I think that the political process has failed, and I think that the United States is in really serious trouble. The name of my book is, is Wounded Colossus. And so when I was talking a little while ago about civic engagement, I think that what's important is to get ordinary citizens... Much more involved in the big challenges facing this country; otherwise, we're we're going to be in
2: um, really, I think, dismal shape for a long time to come. Can you do that the way the traditional print media is set up? You know, this is a time when we see Rupert Murdoch distancing himself from what was the basis of his of the whole News Corp business. I th- I mean, I think traditional media.
0: Uh, has failed uh, in in that sense. Traditional media uh, tells us over and over again how bad things are, you know, and uh, you can get the details in some outlets. It's better than in other outlets, but traditional media um, has not been sort of the uh, has not impelled change. It, it it has not been the agent that has sparked change, and something has to do that. And it seems to me that if you look back o- over history, the great transformational changes in our society um, have originated uh, sort of at the ground level. It, it, it's bubbled up from the bound up, ground up in, in, um, you know, during the course of my lifetime. If you're talking, for example, about the civil rights movement or the, or the women's movement or the environmental movement, none of those, uh, none of those movements were sparked either by media or by mainstream politicians, but all of those movements essentially transformed our society, and I think that I think that's the kind of energy and movement that we need now.
2: So, so social media then—do they get too much credit for the Arab Spring? Uh, you know, it's hard—it's hard for me to tell. It seems to me that the social media has been
0: pretty crucial. Uh, in many ways to the uh, Arab Spring, uh, but I, I don't know if you could say that the Arab Spring would not have cur- occurred if it were not uh, for social uh, media. But what I think right now is that social media is so um, diffuse, it's, it's so vast and uh, so diffuse that it's hard to uh, uh, get a handle on it. What I think happens is that you get uh, activists together uh, and, and they they begin uh, to develop a movement, and then social media, if properly used, can then be a fantastic tool for that movement. But it's hard for me to to imagine that um, revolutions or um, uh, significant transformations just start. Yeah, we we, we, we didn't we, we didn't have social media when they
3: you know hid behind stone walls and shot at the British troops when yeah. you know back in the colonies, and they didn't have it in 1956 in Hungary and and in 68 in, in, in Czechoslovakia. When I was I had a really wonderful opportunity to interview former president of the Czech Republic, Václav Havel, and we were talking about the Velvet Revolution, and I asked him what the secret of the success was at the time. And he said it's a, it was a new piece of technology, He actually, you know, uh, which was then the fax machine, because it allowed them hmm. to get information around monitors and others uh, in, in new ways. These technologies are accelerants. And and there is something fundamentally new and different about social media, which is the everybody-to-everybody everybody kind of thing that Clay Shirky writes about. But but it, but it there's got to be the idea there.
0: Right. There's got
3: to be the grievance there.
1: You need the people.
3: You need the people.
1: Well, Frank Sesno, uh, founder, chief executive officer of facethefacts.org. If you can just leave us, Frank, with just a, a snapshot over the last seven days or, or less of your first few days of operation, what are the things that are really surprising you? And, and we'll take out from there. Uh,
3: f- things that are really surprising me is how quickly this is taking off taking off and taking out and, and where it's gaining traction. Surprising me is how many people have gone to sign up for a daily fact that they're getting in their email, which they do by going to face uh, facethefactsusa.org and just signing up. Uh, surprising me is... Um, well, not surprising me so much, but a little bit that people are seizing the facts and saying, "You guys are liberal, you guys are are, are conservative based on their premise, but that just reinforces the fact that the fact that that <laughs> that, that, that what people uh, see depends upon where they stand but i 'm um, very pleased with what we 're seeing and and by god we 're going to give this a try because bob, as Bob says. This is just not acceptable. If we don't engage our information our elected leaders and one another the right way, we can be just like Greece. It is a really great place to visit. It's not so much of an empire anymore.
1: And has great baklava. It has, you know, <laughs> I, I'll
3: eat my way to heaven in Greece, but I but I, but we we've just got to do our bit and those of us who can should do something. What was it? I'm mad as hell I'm not going to take it
1: anymore. Well, there let's do
3: something about it.
1: Well, Bob Herbert, Frank no. thanks so much for sharing a little bit of Face the Facts, and we'll see you down the road. Thanks, thanks so on. much. So, Craig Manassian, thanks so much for spending some time with us and being my co-host this week on Polyoptics. Let's see what we have coming up for the rest of August. A little quiet for a couple of weeks as we wrap up the convention. Mitt Romney's uh, VP pick the two conventions, I think, are much more exciting and interesting to see what the Republicans can do than what the Democrats will be able to do on the sort of second renomination of Barack Obama. And then we get into September, and as usually happens, the U.N. General Assembly here in New York coincides with the Clinton Global Initiative. What's what's in store? Well, this year
2: we're doing Designing for Impact. It's our first time that we're putting an overall theme to the event, and the idea is to help the non-governmental organizations and the corporations and the philanthropists that that come there design their work to be more impactful. Um, The people who come they make commitments to action we've seen progress and completion of commitments um, from the first years of CGI now now coming to fruition and through that more than 400 million people in 180 countries have been helped by these commitments so um, we're excited about it we always do it around UN Week. we hope that G20 leaders will come. They usually do. Um, And uh, it's a nice point in the year to think about global challenges in a very positive, optimistic way, because the people who are there are actually creating solutions to addressing them.
1: And for me, uh, New Yorker, having lived here for three years only, a great opportunity for me to see all my old friends like Craig Manassian and everyone else who comes up for CGI and a great time in New York City. So look forward to it, Craig. Best of luck for uh, CGI and the rest of the fall and see you down the road. Thank you for having me this week. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS.